when I was in fourth grade, I met my first scholastic challenge in the form of what is infamously known as the Volcano Project. Uh, you or your children are probably familiar uh, with this experience, right? Uh, you know how it goes. Everyone is tasked with building a uh, volcano of clay or paper mache or wood or, or whatever it is you use, and, and mom and dad are supposed to oversee the experience, kind of guide it along and help when needed, and there's a date set wherein everybody is going to erupt their volcanoes via baking soda and vinegar. The same when I did it, and, and I'm not much of an artist, but I, I was pretty proud of my volcano. Like, I, I knew it looked a little bit like a chocolate cake, more so than a volcano, but I, I was still confident in it. Um, and, and I'll never forget, though, uh, as I walked in on what was eruption day and, you know, volcano in tow on the particle board, and seeing everybody else's volcano and, and just kind of having my pride vanish. I mean... Some of these things had civilizations at the bottom of the volcano, all right? They had indoor plumbing and electricity in them, the whole nine yards. They advanced beyond even the prescribed baking soda and vinegar for the eruption process and onto Mentos and Coke, like a true eruption. Parents had obviously taken over the project and then taken it to the next level. It was a little demoralizing, but at any rate, I passed. Not a big deal. Uh, but one of the things that stuck out to me from the experience was how some of my classmates were bragging about their projects as if they had been the ones who ran the electricity and erected the walls rather than their parents. I mean, I just remember thinking, what on earth are you bragging about? You didn't do any of this. Your parents did. I mean, maybe you were in the room when it was happening, but you had nothing to do with it. I, I know you're getting all the credit. I know you're getting all the glory, but it's not yours. It's theirs. Paul's message to the Corinthians in our text today is actually pretty similar. To this point in, in the letter, by way of review, we, we've seen Paul begin correcting the Corinthians by reminding them who they are in Christ. He says, you are called to be the church, called saints, called to be holy. And then he tells them, you are empowered to be holy, empowered to be the church, empowered to be who God has created you to be. And then he began his exhortation in verses 10 through 17, wherein he says, you don't need to be divided. You're called to be the church, you're empowered to be the church, and you need to be united as the church. Don't divide yourselves along these ideological lines by associating with these brand name teachers more so than Christ. And today, Paul continues that thread of argument. He's going to continue explaining to them why they ought to be more focused on the unity they have in Christ than they are on the things that make them different from one another, than they are on their preferences. They should not be so focused about or on bragging about the brand name teachers that they follow, whether Apollos or Paul or whomever, and more so recognizing that anything they have, any spiritual maturity they have is from God rather than themselves. They've really had nothing to do with it. Paul is going to say to them, what on earth are you dividing over? What on earth are you bragging about that you have some kind of spiritual superiority because you follow someone? You didn't do any of this. God did all of your salvation. I mean, maybe you were in the room while it was happening. Maybe it even seemed to you that you were doing all the work in believing. But you had nothing to do with it. It was the miraculous work of God, the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, you have nothing to boast in save for the work of God. We're going to learn from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 2, verse 5, that we are to be the church by boasting or bragging only in the Lord. And so our main idea, what I want you to walk away with this morning, is to boast only in the Lord. And you'll find that in verse 31 specifically. Uh, I also like to say it, if you want to say it in a way that is maybe more hip or cool, like brag on Jesus, right? If that'll help you remember it. Just brag only on Jesus. What's going to happen here, because this is a little bit of a tangled text, and I had to read it a bunch of times because I'm not that smart to kind of figure out what's going on. Paul's basically going to state his thesis or his primary argument in verse 18 at the front end. And then he's going to give us three illustrations to bolster his argument. And and so he's going to hit us with the message of the cross in verses 18 through 25, 18 primarily. And then he's going to give us three illustrations. The first illustration is a crucified Messiah. The second illustration will be our own experiences of salvation. And the third illustration will be his own weakness as a preacher, as the one who brought the gospel to them. And so that's kind of the pattern we're going to follow this morning as we work through the text. And we're going to pray and then we'll, we'll get to it. Father, we thank you for giving us your word through the pens of those who wrote under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that when we read these ancient words, we're not reading words that are aging into irrelevance, but words that are living and active, words that are sharper than knives or swords and more piercing than needles. We thank you that your word changes us and shapes us, reminds us of your greatness and your glory and our need of you. We ask that in our time together you would remind us again that we are mere beggars who have been given the bread of life. Remind us that we are able to enjoy a relationship with you only because of your grace to us in the gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at verse 18 and what's going to happen on the way through this initially. I'm going to stop a few times and kind of give some quick commentary and then we'll get through the whole kind of chunk up to verse 25 and then we'll come back and take a more wide angle lens look at it, if you will. So verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved, for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. This first citation is actually from uh, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 29, and it's probably chosen because Isaiah uses the word wisdom, uh, and and it's making the point that Paul is about to press. In in its original context, the Isaiah quotation belongs to a, a grand series of texts that regularly warn Israel or someone in Israel not to try to match wits with God. It's a warning that you're not as smart as God, so don't try to fit him inside of your philosophical system because God is smarter than you. That's what's going on in Isaiah, and that's important because it helps us read Paul's sarcastic tone as he writes the next verse to us in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made The world's wisdom, foolish. Paul's point is that human wisdom, worldly wisdom, is foolishness before an infinitely wise God. 
It's so stupid, in fact, that, that people perceive it as, as actual brilliance, whereas they perceive God's brilliance as foolishness. They get it flipped upside down. Verse 21, since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach, and this is his first illustration, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Alright, big picture now. Paul is primarily arguing in verse 18 that there is one dividing line in humanity. And that dividing line is the cross. There are two types of people in the world, Paul says. There are those who are called and believe in the word of the cross and are being saved. That's the rescued. And there are those who reject the message of the gospel as foolishness and are perishing. Two types of people, the rescued and the rebelling. But those who are rebelling, those who are persisting in unbelief, are doing so understandably, according to worldly wisdom. I mean, it's understandable that apart from a work of God, that we would perceive, anyone would perceive the work of the cross as foolishness, as abhorrent, as offensive. Uh, try to think of it like this. Think about taking your kids to a play date, right? Going to a play date at a friend's house for the first time and you knock on the door and, and mom opens the door and you notice that the feature piece of jewelry around her neck is a noose, rather large one. And then you, you spy in the corner some branding irons. Next to the toy box is a mini guillotine. On the coffee table, there is a picture of an electric chair. Above the mantle, there are more pictures of gas chambers and of firing squads. Now, at that point, if you're like me as a parent, you probably be like, uh, you know, uh, I got a phone call, um, and something's come up, and we've got to scoot. We've got to get out of here. And on your way out, you would think, what is wrong with those people? Like, that is grotesque. It's not a safe area for for my children, you, you might even be a little bit of a f offended that they would have those things out. Why would they celebrate these things that are awful? Or maybe think of it this way. Uh, what if a woman came to your work wearing earrings stamped with an image of the, the mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb that was dropped over Hiroshima? Or, or what would you think of a church building that was adorned with a fresco of massed graves at Auschwitz? You see, the, the, these visions, these pictures, are not only intrinsically abhorrent, but, but they're also shocking because of the powerful cultural associations. This same sort of, of shocked horror was associated with the cross and crucifixion in the first century. Apart from the emperor's explicit sanction, no Roman citizen could be put to death by crucifixion. I mean, crucifixion was reserved for slaves and aliens and barbarians, the worst of the worst. Many in Rome thought it was not even a to polite topic of discussion. It was taboo. You didn't talk about it. 
It was ugly. It was a, a wretched form of torture inflicted on those who deserved it. They would be hung from a cross. I mean, I mean the cultural associations conjured up images of evil and corruption and of abysmal rejection. Yet today, crosses adorn our buildings. They hang behind preachers as they speak. They sit atop of letterheads and shine from our lapels. Some even dangle from our ears as jewelry. And no one is scandalized. See, it's our, our cultural distance from the first century that, that makes it so hard for us to feel the compelling irony that is present in verse 18 of chapter 1. The word of the cross, we're supposed to feel the weight of that. Crucifixion, this is scandalous. Is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. We need to get rid of our tame understanding of the cross if we are to understand just how it offends. The perishing are unable to see the glory of the cross because they stumble over and dismiss it as foolishness because of its abrasive nature. Also, it is odd in verse 18. We, we expect Paul to say something akin to this. For the message of the cross or the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God, right? I think we expect him to have the word wisdom there, but that's not what he does. Instead, Paul insists that the word of the cross is the power of God. I mean, later he's going to say that the gospel is also the wisdom of God in verse 24, but, but he wants to make clear that salvation is not the consequence of human achievement, but of God's power. It has nothing to do with wisdom and everything to do with the power of God. Salvation has not to do with intellectual ability or your capacity to reason from point A to point B, but only the sovereign work of a holy and omnipotent God. It, it is a little crazy if you think about it, right? Humanity's greatest problem is our estrangement, our relational separation from God because of our sin and our selfishness. Like we're, we're alienated from God and in rebellion against Him. And, and there's no man-made system that can make this relationship right, that we would like there to be. I, I think the default position of our hearts is to think that we can come up with a solution to our problem, that we can fix it. And so we look for like a list of rules that we can keep. You've, you've been around this. Just give me a list of what I need to do and I'll do it. Or, or some penance that we can do to make things right. But, but none of these things work. The only thing that can make man right with God is the bloody cross of Christ. This is offensive. It says you can't do anything. And it took the death of God, the ignominious and humiliating death of God on a cross to save you. And this is Paul's first and primary illustration of how God's wisdom appears as foolishness to sinners who think themselves wise. A crucified Messiah makes zero sense. I mean, it sounds like a contradiction in terms. It is an oxymoron of the highest order. Uh, say, saying crucified Messiah is tantamount to saying frozen steam or hateful love. 
or the University of Virginia and winning football, right? The the two don't go together. I'm sorry, that was mean. That's why I usually only read what I have written down. That's... Messiah meant power and splendor and triumph, might. Crucifixion meant weakness and humiliation and defeat. I mean, it's a little wonder that both Jew and Greek were scandalized by the Christian message because no mere human in their right mind or otherwise would have ever dreamed up God's scheme for our redemption. A crucified Messiah? The idea that God saves men and women by dying in their place for their sins is too preposterous, too humiliating for a deity. What kind of God would die to redeem his creation? Something of infinitely smaller value than himself. I mean, to the unbelieving heart, this action of God seems ridiculous and offensive because the folly of the gospel requires we exercise faith in God's wisdom rather than our own. It requires that we exchange our trust of our own power for trust in God's power. It requires that we forsake self-reliance in favor of reliance upon God. And it is precisely this trusting God rather than self, that the wise sinner or the rebel refuses to do. And Paul, Paul points out two types of rebels, and I think he covers the whole spectrum of humanity in them. The first are those who are like the Jews, demand that God validate himself by performing a sign. We see Jews ask Jesus for signs throughout his ministry, Right? Sometimes he does them, sometimes he doesn't do them. Sometimes the miracles that he performs seem to bring about faith, and sometimes they do not. I think it's because miracles don't produce faith, but only the action of God through the power of the Holy Spirit produces faith. Consequently, some who are asking for signs do so from the prompting of the Holy Spirit, whereas others demand signs from God, from Jesus, that they might evaluate him. Those who look to judge Jesus on the basis of signs are are attempting to reduce him to to nothing more than a powerful genie uh, who who subjects himself to the whims of his superiors. But Jesus is far more than a clever performer, and he submits himself to no one. See, those who forget that, forget that it is not we who will judge God. It's not we who stand over God in judgment, but God who in the end stands over us in judgment. The demand for signs becomes a prototype of every human condition that human beings raise as a barrier to belief. So, so what it looks like today, oftentimes, or what it sounds like it is when people say things like this. I will devote myself to God if he heals my sickness. I will follow Jesus if I can maintain my independence and do what I want. I will become a Christian if God proves himself to me. I'll read my Bible and pray if my marriage gets sorted out to my satisfaction. I'll follow God if the Cubs win the World Series. That one worked for a long time, and now there are a lot more people in church. I'll acknowledge Jesus as Lord if he performs the kind of miracle on demand that removes all doubt. 
See, in each case, the person that is saying if is assessing Jesus and stipulating the terms of the relationship that they might have between themselves and God. Rather than accepting and submitting to the terms of the relationship that Jesus has laid down. Now, here's the thing. Even if Jesus met all of your conditions, completed all of your ifs to your satisfaction, and you were an unbeliever, you still would not believe. You still wouldn't believe. Because the problem is not a lack of signs or lack of evidence or lack of truth in the world. The problem is your sinful and hardened heart. The problem is that if you do not know Jesus, you are dead in your sins and can do no good thing. The story of Lazarus is an excellent example of all this, I I think. Uh, If you're familiar with it, Jesus knows Lazarus is sick. But instead of going to Lazarus and just healing him of his sickness right away, Jesus intentionally stays where he's at for a few days longer so that Lazarus is good and dead when they travel to see him. Right? Now, as he's traveling to, to see him, Martha rolls up to him and she's like, my Lord, if you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know, right? But eventually he hits her with this line. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's on this that he he meets others, Mary among them. They're all weeping and mourning. Lazarus has been dead four days. We read that, that the only memory verse that you have, if you only have one, is Jesus wept, right? You know that one. (laughs) I've got that one down. This is where we read that, the story of Lazarus. Jesus knows what he's about to do, but still he, he weeps with those who weep. And then we read that he quakes with rage. He gets angry at sin and death. And he asks those around as he goes to the tomb. He says, hey, uh, Brit, will you o- remove the stone? And they're all like, he's been dead four days. It's going to smell Jesus. Like, I don't know if that's a great idea. And he asks them, or says to them, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? They move the stone, he he prays so they know that he's the one that's doing this, and then he shouts just three words, Lazarus, come out! Lazarus comes out, mummified, wrapped in burial clothes, alive! And the result is everybody believes and crowns Jesus as king. No, that's not what happens. The result is, John 11.45, we read, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus did believed in him. But, here we go, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Like they're tattletailing on Jesus to the Pharisees. Mom, Jesus is raising the dead again. This is terrible. The Pharisees talk, and we're made privy to that conversation, talk about what they're going to do with Jesus because he's off raising the dead. And we read in verse 53, so from that day on, they, the Jews, the Pharisees, plotted to kill Jesus. The result of Jesus performing a pretty spectacular miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead with a few words, gives belief to some and cements others in their unbelief. Actually, ironically, Jesus ends Lazarus' funeral at the expense of beginning his own funeral. Because the Jews would seek to kill him and they would succeed. And here's this. He's going to raise himself from the dead. And even when he raises from the dead, they still persist in their unbelief. 
And his words from Luke 16.31 are proved true. He's speaking in a parable here, but, but they apply. He says, if they, people, unbelievers, don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Here's the point. Signs and miracles and evidence do not produce faith. Only the supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit in your heart, produces faith. All right, second kind of wise rebel that Paul points out are those who, like the Greeks, insist that they can and must be able to explain everything. Carson writes of this group, This group creates entire structures of thought so as to maintain the delusion that they can explain everything. They think they are scientific, in control, powerful. God, if he exists, must meet the high standards of their academic and philosophical prowess and somehow fit into their system, if he is to be given any sort of respectful hearing. They treat God as if they have the right to approve him, to examine his credentials. See, this group says if in a different way. They say, if I can explain God, and I can explain and understand God's actions, then I will believe. Both types of rebels, the one who asks for signs and the one who seeks wisdom, wants to explain everything, both of these groups rely on themselves, on their reasoning capabilities to find God. Both think that if God exists, that he must meet their standards and they must be able to understand and explain him. I mean, this is ultimately idolatry of the highest order. It's idolatry of self that insists God conform to our prior views about how the God who would make sense to us ought to do things. In our desperate folly, we as sinners act as if we can outsmart God, as if he owes us explanations, as if we are wise and self-determining while he exists only to meet our needs. But the God who is there The God who is, says in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. God does not bend the knee to our intellectual expectations, but thwarts our attempts to make him subject to them by saving those who believe through the foolishness of the cross. The gospel is God's power to those who believe in the place where God supremely destroys all human arrogance and all human pretension is the cross. The cross declares the truth that God saves people not because of righteous acts or superior intelligence, but in spite of our sinfulness and our inferior intelligence. I mean, man-made religion, it wants to say, you can take care of the problem. You can get yourself reconciled to God. But true religion, Christianity, says God takes care of the problem, and you can only receive it. God gets all the glory for your salvation. You get none of it. In heaven, Jesus is the only one that's getting high fives. Right? You are not getting dapped up and getting knuckles and getting congratulated. It's God's work. It's God's glory, and he's not sharing it with you. Your salvation is not a, a group effort, like you did a part and God did his part. No, God does it all. 
For since, verse 21, in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. That should be what is preached. Your old KJV will have uh, preaching uh, as if it's a participle there. It's not. It's the content of the gospel that is being featured here. It is the content of the gospel that flips upside down the economy of the world. It flips upside down the values of the world. And we need to make sure that we know the content of the gospel. I like to use the following sentence to help me uh, in terms of making sure that when I do share the gospel with others, that I share it fully and completely. It's going to be a little complicated at first, but we'll work back through it. I want to say something like this. You need to be saved from God, by God, to God, for God. We want to be saved from God because all of us as sinners deserve his just wrath because we've been in rebellion against him. And the only way we can be saved from him is if we are saved by him. Jesus takes God's wrath for us. You always hear me say it this way. Jesus lives the life we should have lived and he dies the death we deserved to die. We're saved to God into relationship with God, the relationship we were made for. And then lastly, we're saved for God. We are saved to live on God's mission for God's glory in this life and on into eternity. That's the content of the gospel. We need to be saved from God, by God, to God, for God. And friends, it is vital that we know these things. You might have a different sentence or a different way that you uh, use to articulate the gospel, but it's, it's just crucial that you know how to share the gospel and that you do so with kindness and patience and, and gentleness that we are witnessing to the resurrection of our Lord, to our neighbors and our family and our friends and our acquaintances. Because it is the content, it is the word of the cross that is the power unto salvation. They cannot believe unless they hear. Do you know how to share the gospel with friends? Listen, if not, learn. Learn. I mean, don't be embarrassed. Ask me or another church member to help you figure it out. Work on it. It'll probably only take 15 minutes to half an hour. You must learn how to share the content of the gospel so that those who are in rebellion against God might move to being those who were rescued into relationship with God. Which brings us to our next question. Who is it exactly that is rescued? I think from a human perspective, which we have in verse 21, those who are rescued are those who believe. From the divine perspective we have in verses 1 through 9 and verse 26, it is those who are called. Now how do these two perspectives, divine sovereignty and human responsibility, work together in the process of salvation? I don't know. God destroys the wisdom of the wise and sets aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Here's what I do know is that Scripture teaches both as true and calls us to believe that these, this seeming paradox is resolved in the magnificent person of God. The gospel commands us to believe. And people always ask, well, how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know if I'm called by God? You know that you're called by God if you choose to believe. If you choose to repent of your sins and trust God, then you are called. Perhaps now some of you are remembering your own call or even feeling for the first time as if you want to believe. Let me exhort you to do it. I mean, this is the stirring up of faith within you. If you 
have a desire to believe God, you are feeling the call of God. So stop foolishly trying to rely upon your own abilities to arrive at a place of faith. You cannot reason your way into faith. If you could, it would rob God of His glory. If you could reason yourself into faith, your rescue would be in part because of your work instead of God's work. And God is not going to give you any reason to brag about yourself. No, He is the only person that we get to brag about. Jesus alone. These next two sections will be much quicker. Paul presses the point that that God destroys human wisdom and our reasons for bragging about ourselves by saving us through a crucified Messiah. And then he gives us his second illustration by calling us to consider our own salvation. He writes, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. Opponents of Christianity have have long tried to turn this passage against Christianity. Uh, in the second century, uh, Celsus was a guy's name. He, he notoriously wrote the following Christians he's speaking of. Their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near, for these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, They show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid. Only slaves, women, and children. End quote. D.A. Carson responds, Along analogous lines, contemporary intellectuals work very hard at conveying the impression that all Christians are fools. And on first reading, Paul might be taken to support this criticism. However, a more careful reading shows us that Paul's point is rather different. Uh, the most important thing to notice is that Paul is saying not many of you rather than not any of you. Uh, In the days of the great evangelist George Whitfield, the Countess of Huntingdon uh, used to say that she was saved by the letter M, not many, because she was from the upper crust of society. We also know that uh, from the position of Crispus and Gaius and Erastus and Stephanus, Paul himself, members of the Corinthian church, that that this doesn't mean that the the church is excluding those who are wealthy or intelligent, etc. So what, what is Paul saying here? And this is what he's saying. God's grace can save anyone from any station of life at any time. The church is made up of those of all social classes, all racial categories, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to the glory of God, to reflect His beautiful diversity and also so that none can claim superiority. I think think human standards are all about hierarchy. There are the famous and the wealthy and the intellectually elite and then there are nobodies. Nobodies. But the cross levels this division because all are equal in Christ. 
No one has any grounds for boasting. No, no one is called because they're famous or because they're wealthy. No, God, Paul tells us, deliberately rescues weak people to flip the expectation of human wisdom on its head. This is why Jesus in the Beatitudes speaks not of the happiness or the blessedness of the wise or the successful or the powerful, but the happiness of those who grieve, of the poor, and of those who suffer persecution for doing right. It is those who will forsake self-reliance for trust in Christ that are rescued from eternal suffering into peace with God. Any, any version of the gospel which substitutes a message of personal success for the cross is a manipulative, counterfeit gospel. It's a terrible lie. Because ultimately, verse 30, it is from Him, that's God, that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. These are three big words that we could do a sermon on each of them and probably more, but I'm going to summarize them right quick for you. First, righteousness. In Jesus, you have an unchanging right standing with God. Your position before God is the same on your worst day as it is on your best day. You are right with God. Sanctification. In Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're growing in holiness. You're becoming more and more godly. More and more like Jesus. We always say it this way. Uh, positionally in Christ, that doesn't change. I'm already right with God. But practically, this is sanctification. I'm becoming in practice what, I was been, what I've been declared in Christ. Positionally, I'm right with God. Practically, I'm not perfectly holy yet, but I'm moving in that direction because I'm following Jesus. Lastly, last word here, redemption. In Jesus, you are freed from sin and corruption and death and brought into the relationship with God you were meant to have. Love uh, this section. God takes nobodies and makes them somebodies in Christ. Somebodies in Christ. It's, it's wonderful. And in verse 31 he says, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Now this should sound familiar because we read it earlier in our service together. Paul has been quoting sections of Jeremiah throughout this little argument. And I'm going to quote Jeremiah in full to you once again and see if you can make the connection. Right? Verse 31 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, uh, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is what the prophet Jeremiah writes in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is no other grounds for boasting. We who believe, we who have been called, we who have been chosen have nothing to brag about. The only thing we have to celebrate is not ourselves, but our God and His work in us in bringing us to belief. As Paul's illustrated, humanity's rescue is entirely the work of God by pointing to our need for a crucified Messiah, 
our own experiences of salvation. Now he's going to show us that it's not his rhetorical skill as a preacher that has caused the gospel to change the Corinthians, nor is it the oratory ability of any preacher that causes anyone to believe, but God's power. God the Holy Spirit at work in us. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. For I did not think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul deliberately abandons the rhetorical practices of Corinth. The Corinthians greatly valued the oratorical ability of public speakers. Right? They actually became more interested in the ability of the speaker to argue for something than they were in the truth of what they were arguing for. And so Paul's decision to simply proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified shouldn't be twisted to mean that Paul was a poor communicator. I mean, after all, he wrote the majority of the New Testament, and we also have pagans and Acts confusing him with, uh, is it the Greek god Hermes? Right? They think he's the Greek god Hermes, who's the god of communication. Like, he comes and they think he is the god of communication because he's so awesome and he has to tell them to stop worshiping him. So Paul's a good communicator, but in Corinth, he got rid of all, those, all that kind of whiz-bang, all the powerful illustrations, and focused on the content of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wanted to remind the Corinthians that they were brought to faith not because of any clever or witty or amusing or glittering displays of eloquence on his part, but because of the power of the word of the cross. In conclusion, Paul's three illustrations are crucified Messiah, our own experiences of salvation, and the impotence of the preacher uses all of these to bolster his argument for unity among Christians. He's teaching us that we need to stop dividing ourselves against ins- uh, along insignificant lines. Stop trying to compete with one another and think that we are superior because we associate with this person or this political party or this particular group of people. But instead, we need to be united because none of us has anything to be proud of save for the God who has saved us. We're reminded in this section that the cross and the cross alone is the dividing line of humanity and that there are only two types of people. Those who are perishing and in rebellion and those who have been saved and rescued out of their rebellion. And we who are saved have nothing to brag about except for the glorious and powerful work of our Savior. We learn from this section in Corinthians that we are to be the church by being united in Christ and boasting or bragging only in Christ. There hasn't been much application this sermon. One was to know the content of the gospel, and here's the second application for you, and it will be very quick. What do you brag about? What are you proud of? What do you boast in? Is it Jesus How often is his name on your lips? Friends, we need to be those who gossip the gospel. Do you gossip the gospel? 
You speak of God's wonderful and powerful work to your children and to your parents, to your grandchildren. You speak of Him to your friends. What do you boast in? You were created to boast in the Lord. We are created to reflect God's glory, to proclaim His greatness, to boast in His wonderful person and work. We were created to know God and worship Him by enjoying Him forever. Let us be people that are about bragging about our wonderful Lord and Savior together. Let's pray. God, we thank you that the cross is beautifully insulting. For in it, God fully humiliates our own attempts to save ourselves through wisdom or philosophical systems or for a demand of signs. Lord, we thank you that in the death of Jesus Christ, you have judged all who were responsible for his death. We thank you that Jesus not only has taken on himself our sins and our guilt and removed them. Thank you that he's disarmed us in your presence by forgiving us when we richly deserve death. What a wonderful Savior. What a preposterous way for you to reconcile us to yourself. Indeed, we are nobodies unworthy to address you at all. And yet you allow us to call you Father. And you call us sons in Christ. Father, we thank you that the scandalous message of the cross brings about our adoption through the propitious work of Jesus on the cross. Lord, we thank you that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the dead victorious to prove his person and his work, his ability to save and make us right with you. We thank you that the cross is your answer to our greatest problem. We thank you that you've brought us into your house and made us a part of your family and a part of one another. Thank you for our identity in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.